quick. <laughs> well, good morning. It's a joy to be together uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the last uh, of our time in the series of, of Flawed. Uh, and so if we're, we're going to start in a minute, but I would invite you to turn to 2 Samuel 11 uh, and to just keep your finger there because that's where we will eventually end up as we start this morning. Um, in today's culture, we're, we're really used to people having issues and wanting nothing to do with the church for probably a thousand different reasons, right? We know the, we know the big ones, you know, people don't want to have any part of the church because they don't want to have anything to do with, with God, they don't believe in him anymore, or maybe they think that the church is full of hypocrites and, you know, they don't want to have anything to do with people that are like that. Uh, for whatever reason, you know, maybe they think that you're just silly for believing in any kind of supernatural thing or, or, or religion. There's all these reasons that we're aware of for why people don't want to set foot in a church um, the predominant reason, honestly, today, and this is one of the newer developments over the, over the past maybe century, is that the, the, the predominant reason why people might not want to step foot in a church today is simply because they just don't care. Right? The, the apathy level when it comes to, to Christianity is on the rise to where the average person on the street, if you ask them, why wouldn't you come here? It's not because of any negative reason or really any reason at all. It's because they just don't care or haven't given any thought to it, right? That's the, the, the largest by a margin of, a massive margin, the answer that you would get today if you were to ask people, why is it that you don't come to church or participate in church or have an interest in, in church or the gospel at all? It just, they would say, I never really, never really thought about it, right? But um, I, I had a few years ago, probably about 12 years ago or so, an, an experience with why, why someone wouldn't come to church that, that I'll never forget that has stuck with me for over a decade now. I was leading a group of, of high schoolers on a mission trip to St. Louis uh, with, the, with the church back in Pittsburgh uh, some time ago. And when we were there, we, the group that I was with worked with a, a homeless shelter. Um, and I had been there a few years before as a student and actually worked in that same homeless shelter. So it was kind of a, we a cool thing as a youth pastor to go back to where I was when I was, a, I think, a sophomore or a junior in high school, and I was working with, with some folks. We were, we were serving meals and handing out you know, coats and all those kinds of things uh, that you do at a, at a homeless shelter, and I had an interaction with a guy that was eating lunch there. It was one of, the, one of the homeless gentlemen that was there, and we're sitting down, and we got to talking about things, and, you know, who are you? Where are you from? And I said, yeah, I'm a youth pastor. I've got a bunch of students here, and he's like, oh, don't talk to me about that, that stuff, that church stuff. I said, oh, well, I mean, this is a Christian homeless shelter. <laughs> I'm just... Kind of curious as to, you know, so I was probing him, and, and one of the things that came out is that he, he said he'd, he never would step foot in a church, and when I asked him why, he gave me an answer I wasn't ready for. His answer was this, he goes, because I am way too dirty, and I'd be way too scared what God would do to me at the doorway on my way in. He said, and even if God would let me into his church, I'd be worried about what his, what his people would do to me. He goes, listen, listen, man, you don't know the things that I've done in my life. And if you did, then you would feel the same about me coming into your church. Right? That one stuck with me for a while. Um, 
mainly because hopefully, uh, you know, you don't, not that you find that silly, but that's not a valid excuse as we'll explore today, and that's not the truth at all, but that perception of church is something I hadn't thought about yet. I know that people didn't want to come because they didn't care. I knew they didn't want to come because they were hostile to the gospel. I knew they didn't want to come because they thought we were all a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites. All that makes sense to me, but to be scared to step into the feet of the, into the doors of a church because of your own mess is something that I hadn't thought through. And then I felt guilty that I hadn't thought through it because I felt like, whoa, what was me? Am I so self-righteous that I shouldn't be scared to walk into God's house and see what he would do to me? Right? And I had all these thoughts floating through my head, but I will never forget that conversation. Right? Maybe there's times that you feel that way or have felt that way. Maybe it's not to the point where you would never step foot in a church, but maybe on Sunday mornings, you, you know, the first time you came or this week even, you come to the door and you're kind of like, ah, I don't think I should be in there. Right? I don't know. Right? Those people don't know what my history is, what I've done. The, the great thing about him was that he is, if, if God, he literally said, if God knew what I had done, he would, he would strike me down when I walked into the doors of his church. And I wanted to say to him, God, God already knows what you've done, whether you walk into the church or not. Uh, and if he wants to strike you down, he could do it in the homeless shelter. He doesn't have to wait until you go into his house. It's not like it's like the cops where he only has a jurisdiction, you know, in his church building. I didn't, I didn't say that to the guy, but I really wanted to. But it, it struck me because we, it, it's okay to feel that way. And I think a lot more people might feel that way than we want to admit and let on. And maybe there's people in this room and you yourself, there's times where I've kind of felt that way, right? It never to the point where it would scare me from actually going in, but I do, every once in a while, you know, you feel like, ah, man, maybe I don't belong here. I'm too messed up to be in here. Today, we're going to finish our time in our, in our flawed series, and we're going to look at um, David, the final character. And I saved him for last for a reason that we'll get into later. But, you know, this, this series, this flawed series is kind of, kind of about this idea of, of do you belong here and who deserves to be in this hall of faith and all these kinds of things. And so I thought David might be a good guy to close with. And what's unique about David is that David is lumped in with a whole bunch of people. Right? If you look at the, the Hebrews hall of faith, you would think that David would get like the special honor recognition entry, right? Like, he's kind of hailed above all else. But here's what we read. Here's the section on David. Don't stand for this. We're going to stand in a second. But, and what more shall I say? This is like the footnote at the end of the Hall of Faith. For time would fail me to tell of. He's like, I don't have time to talk about these guys, but they're also okay. But Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets. Kind of a big list of people. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. David, in the Hall of Faith, is a footnote, but he's still included in it. He still gets at least the honorable mention. And David is unique because David gets some accolades that these people do not get. There's, some, there's a word, a phrase that gets attributed to David that has baffled me for a long, long time when it comes to the mind of God, and it's this. Two times in Scripture, David, by God, is called a man after his own heart. God calls David a man after his own heart. The first time is in 1 Samuel 13, and the second time Paul is reiterating it in Acts 13.22. He refers to David as a man after his own heart. God is saying, David's heart is like my own. 
That's how much I value him. That's how great David is. And the problem is that as we've looked at all these other characters, David was a deeply flawed human being. Probably more than any of the other ones that we've seen. So this morning, let's take a look at the transgressions of David, which are egregious. They're worse than anyone we've looked at so far. And let's see what we can't pull out of that. To set the scene real quick, David has just had a a major victory against the Ammonites. Um, If if we're going to write the memoirs of David and look at at his life as kind of a a, a mountaintop and then a a descend down or whatever, every one of us could, could look at it and say, this was the greatest point of my life. Like, this is when I was at my best, right? Like, I would say 23 is when I was the most fit I've ever been, right? After 23, it all just started to meh. You know, right? But in terms of the reign of David and, and who he was and his power and his might and how you'd want to look at him as this great king, at the end of chapter 10 is, is probably David's highest point. Right? They, they, they've crushed, they're about to completely annihilate, it's not over yet, but they've crushed the Ammonite forces and the Syrians that have helped them. And, and so as we start this passage, we have to understand that David is at his most popular He is at his most righteous. He is at his most faithful. He is at the point where God is probably more pleased with him than he's ever been, right? This is the leader that you all hope and dream for, right? Imagine a president who 100% of the people wanted to vote for. I know it's hard, but imagine, right? (laughs) And they all voted him in, and he's here, and he's in his, his second year of his first term, and actually, the people have gotten together and already re-elected him before he even got to, the, got to November. You know, they're just, they're ready. They're ready. He is the powerful one who everyone can get behind. He's getting it done. He has all the power, all the honor, all the fame, all the praise of God himself. And he is riding high because he has shown himself to be righteous and faithful perfectly over and over and over again. He's getting it done. You would look at him and go, Wow. If we could have a leader like that, everything would be great, right? And so it's in that context that we get to the passage that is in front of us today. And so I would invite us to stand as we read a rather lengthy account of, of, uh, of David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, which is their their main city. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house. 
with all the servants of the Lord. Didn't stay at his own house and did not go into his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in the booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain there also, and tomorrow I will send you back. And so he did. I lost my spot. (laughs) So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank. And so he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieged, besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. It's the word of the Lord. Let's take a seat. Not so great of a guy, that David, after all. A couple things here. Uh, David is taking a walk on his palace roof, and it says he sees Bathsheba. Um, This isn't some kind of voyeur kind of thing. Uh, So far, no transgressions have occurred, right? All that's happening is he's on the roof of his palace. The evening, the sun is coming down. It's evening time. He's taking a little walk. Uh, He's just gotten off of his couch. And he sees her below because the palace is super high. Uh, We don't get the sense that Bathsheba was doing anything bad here whatsoever, right? The the idea that somehow, you know, was she just like outside of her house bathing? No, she was bathing where she normally would bathe. It was probably private within the neighborhood in which she was. If it weren't for the giant palace, no one would be able to see it. She is above reproach. She's above board. She's doing what she's supposed to be doing. She's not provoking David somehow. She's not flirtatious or anything like that. Right? And he sees her, and there's nothing wrong with seeing her, right? Like you accidentally see a woman bathing naked, there's nothing wrong with that. But from the moment he sees her, what happens next kind of progressively gets worse, right? Now, Scripture doesn't tell us to what degree Bathsheba was a participant or a victim here. We don't know, right? We don't know if once the king summoned her, if she was willing, if this was an affair, or if he coerced her and took advantage, or if he was, at the very least, maybe from a position of power, she didn't feel like she could argue. We don't know the circumstances of how much or how little Bathsheba is, is, is part of this or a victim of this. And it's not that that doesn't matter. It matters a great deal. But for the sake of the story and what we're trying to hear from God here, it focuses on David's actions. It doesn't suggest that Bathsheba does anything wrong. And so we don't know, but for the sake of the narrative, in this particular instance, God is choosing to focus on David's screw-ups, not on whether or not Bathsheba has any part to play in it or not. So let's presume her innocent until proven guilty and assume that David is the one who instigates and that he uses a position of power to draw her in and he sleeps with Uriah's wife and she becomes pregnant. 
And so David finds out about this, and from here, things just get continuously worse. He, he, he schemes from the outset. And at first, his schemes seem not innocent, but not as intense. He says, you know what, let me bring Uriah home from battle, right? And chances are, a guy who's been out at war for quite a few years, when he comes back and I give him the chance to go with his wife, he's going to come back, they're going to do their thing, and then everybody's just going to assume that it's Uriah's kid, and it'll be great, that it'll work out perfectly, Right? No one will be the wiser. We'll keep it. We'll bury the secret. It'll all be good. There'll be a son of mine somewhere that I don't know, and everything will be great, and I'll be able to continue on as king. But what he didn't count on was the fact that Uriah was one of the most upstanding guys. Now, men, hear me. You've been at war for years. You're invited to come back, and the powers that be say, hey, go spend a couple days in your house. Anyone not going home? Please. You'd be running so fast. Well, today you take an Uber, but you know. Uriah doesn't go to the house. He listens to the king. He respects the king. He honors the king. But when it's time to go, he stays outside of the court of the king. He never goes home because if his fellow soldiers can't have this privilege, then neither can he because he's in solidarity with the men that he's fighting with and he's honorable to God. And so then David thinks, well, what can I do next? I know. I'll get him drunk. Drunk guy will go home and sleep with his wife. He gets him drunk, and he gets outside the door. He still upholds his morality, and he never goes home, and instead he passes out outside of David's court. At this point, if you're David, you're thinking, what do I got to do to get a husband to sleep with his wife? But Uriah is an upstanding guy. He won't do it. He won't cave. He stands with his men in solidarity, and he honors the Lord. And I wouldn't be surprised to speculate that the Lord might have, in some ways, kept him from his house and kept him above board for the sake of God's plan. And so David could have, at this point, come clean, right? He could have made a whole bunch of choices. The reality is he's still the king. He could have said to Uriah, hey, your wife and I had a thing, uh, and she's pregnant. I'm sorry. Uriah wouldn't have a whole lot to say about that. Probably. I mean, he'd be mad, but what are you going to do? Yell at the king? But instead, he schemes. Because David is all about the reputation that he has. He wants to be the righteous, perfect, awesome king. And so he says, listen, send Uriah to the front line. And here's the real, just gross part of this. He gives the letter to Joab to Uriah to take back essentially handing over the letter that seals his own fate. And he says, put him on the front lines and pull back the troops when, it's, when the time comes so that the battle that we've already kind of won, right, this, this is like not a major war. They're finishing up. They're getting the last city, right? But in the midst of the fighting where really no one should fall because this is over already, send him to the forefront and pull back your troops so that he is killed and he's killed. And so David allows him to die because he wanted to cover up his affair. He's not free to take Bathsheba. So this ensures that that something happens. If he dies, if Uriah dies, David can now take Bathsheba as his wife. And so not only does he cover up his transgressions, but think about it, he actually looks good in the process of it. Oh, this poor widow who lost her husband in battle, I will take her under my wing and make her one of my wives so that she has the the safety and the protection. What a great king this David is. 
It doesn't just save his reputation, it actually enhances it. The level of deceit and ugliness that David commits. What a great king this David is. Right? Now, we're going to look at how the Lord deals with David. And make no mistake, the Lord does deal with David. He doesn't get away with what he shouldn't get away with. But before we do, there are four major points that we're going to draw out of the David narrative today. And only the first one comes in the passage that we just read. The second and third and fourth will come in in looking at the next chapter in 2 Samuel 12. But the first is this. The first thing we need to take away here is that, that David's character was flawless up until this time. And the reason I bring that up for you, here's the point. He is a model godly man, and he stumbles into adultery, cover-up, and murder within a matter of one chapter. I don't know about you, up until the end of 2 Samuel 10, none of us here can aspire to the same level of godly righteousness as David did. And so one of the things that we need to take away from an account like this from looking at the life of David is there is no one here that is above the capacity for serious, gross, egregious levels of sin. No one here is above the capacity for grotesque, egregious levels of sin. If you think, well, I would never be able to do that, you are wrong. Under the right circumstances, because our hearts are stained and we are deceitful, wretched, gross sinners, every one of us within us has the capacity to do those kinds of things. And the moment you think it can't be you, guess what? It's you. I can't tell you how many people I have talked to over the years that have been unfaithful to their spouse or a girlfriend or whatever, and they're like, I never thought I... Right? If you think it can't be you... You're way more self-righteous than you think you are. Because you're not as upstanding as David was up until this point. And just like that, he fell. So the number one thing here, first to remember, every one of us is capable of falling from grace the way that David did under the right circumstances. You might say, I might never, but if the right things happen to you and the right circumstances present themselves and you get stuck in some kind of a bind, there is a point to which every one of you is capable of the sin that David committed. Every one of you. You can't send someone to battle to die because you're not present, but you get the idea, right? You have to understand that. He is not unique. We are just like David. We are. We have the capacity, right? Now, God chooses to deal uh, with David uh, in a unique way. God calls Nathan, the prophet, to, to deal with David. And I want you to put yourself in the, in the shoes of, of Nathan for a second because he goes to Nathan and this is what God says. God, Nathan, you're going to go, like the king committed adultery and then murder to cover it up. Um, I want you to go call him out. By the way, he's killed people. Like for lesser things. But like, go, call him out. I want you to go into David and I want you to say, David, you're, you're a sinner. You, you did this and I'm calling you out. And so you picture Nathan going home like, okay, how am I going to have that conversation? (laughs) He's the king. He could execute me because, I don't know, he ate something bad and he's not feeling great that day. He has all the power 
Am I going to go up to him and call him out for this most egregious of accusations? As a matter of fact, he's probably worried that if he calls him out, David's going to kill him just to cover it up more. He already killed one guy to cover up a pregnancy. You don't think he's going to kill somebody to cover up a murder? Of course he would. And so Nathan goes to David, probably shaking in his boots. But Nathan has the wisdom of the Lord. And here's what he says. Let's stand up one more time. This isn't like last week. We will not have a whole lot of updowns. But let's stand um, as we read the way that the Lord chooses to deal with David. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel, and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. And then he took a step back. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now God's talking, not Nathan. I anoint you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hands of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the son. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. The word of the Lord. All right. If you're wondering, does David get to be let off the hook? No, of course he doesn't. The Lord deals with him very, very harshly. Right? Nathan uses this fictional story about Somebody to make David mad at himself, essentially. He goes, that person should be judged. And Nathan goes, well, that's kind of exactly what you did, isn't it? And, and, and David has the realization, right? And so the Lord pronounces harsh judgments upon David. He calls him out all through verses 7 through 12. He calls out every sin, and he calls out the circumstances of the sin. He goes, listen, I gave you everything. I gave you all that you needed. I put you in power. I put you in the seat where you're sitting right now. Everything you have has come from me. And if that hadn't been enough, you could have come to me and I would have given you even more. But it wasn't enough, wasn't it, David? You had to have the one thing that wasn't yours. Right? 
Are you kidding me? And he comes down harsh on him over and over again. I was faithful. I gave you everything you wanted, and you took what you shouldn't have. You went against the Lord. Right? The second of our four points this morning is, listen, God is punitive. God hates sin. He absolutely hates sin. And he hates your sin, your specific sin. You, point to yourself. He hates your sin. He despises it. He's angered against it. He furiously opposes it. It kindles every fiber of wrath that he has within him that you sin. And the things that you do wrong in life, God hates those things. Oh man, does he hate those things. Right? And you can hear it in the way that he talks to David. Right? Absolutely hates them. One of the things when we, as Christians, hear the gospel in, in, in today's context is a lot of times we think, well, grace has covered us, right? The cross took care of things. God paid the penalty for all our sins. So does it really matter if we just kind of keep on living the life that we're supposed to live? No, right? That's why Paul tells us in Romans 6.1, shall we sin all the more that grace may abound? Paul literally finishes telling the gospel story. And then one of the first things he gets into is, listen, just in case you think that the cross of Jesus Christ gives you a license to do whatever you want and he'll cover you at the end. That's not how this works. Right? Shall we sin all the more that grace should abound? Absolutely not. God hates our sin. And the anger of the Lord burns against David for it. And the anger of the Lord burns against your sin and my sin. Right? No one is above serious sin. God hates it. And so that's what we have to understand. Number one, every one of us has the capacity to sin as deeply as David. Number two, the Lord hates his sin and he hates our sin as well. And we see the third major point when we look at verse 13. It's the briefest verse in the passage that we just read, but it's so powerful. And it's crazy that it's so short. David confesses and repents in verse 13. All he says is, I have sinned against the Lord. And the very next thing that comes from Nathan's mouth is, the Lord has put away your sin. He's put it away. Right? A couple of things. God puts it away. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. It's not like he's saying, okay, let's just pretend your sin didn't happen. No, God takes the sin and he puts it away. It is gone. It is dealt with. It is no longer a factor. The Lord has removed David's sin because he repented. And then the second thing is he spares him from what the consequence of sin should be. What does it say? The wages of sin is death, says the Lord. He spares him by saying, David, you are not going to die because of this. The third thing is this. God offers to each and every one of us, to you, to me, to David, a radical, full-throated, unequivocal grace the likes of which you can't even understand for your sin if you are repentant. David once repents and the Lord puts it behind him, forgives him, restores him, and moves on. That's it. And David lives faithfully as a result afterwards. It's forgotten, it's put behind, it's, it's moved on. We carry forward, he restores David to the place that he was at the end of chapter 10 and he carries on as king and there things happen and we'll get to that in a second but the, but the Lord restores David and so we get to Hebrews 11 and he is commended again like everyone else in that book 
for his faith, but the faith that God gave him and enabled within him, not the stuff that he accomplished on his own. And the last little sub-point to mention is that there are consequences nonetheless, right? The section ends with the description of the son that was born out of this is going to die. And there's going to be a feuding as a result of this. Your own house is going to turn against you. And as we look through scripture, we see that the sin that David committed keeps coming back to him over and over and over again in an earthly sense. The Lord has forgiven it. He is in right standing with God. God is no longer pronouncing judgment upon him for his sin. He's forgiven and he's restored. But sin still has consequences. We should not expect that when we come and we encounter Christ and he saves us and he renews us and he transforms us, that our sin in, in the world just gets swept under the rug and goes away. God forgives us. God gives us a new heart. God makes us a new person. When we stand before him, we, he won't bring it up. It won't be like the argument you had with your spouse where they bring up something from five years ago that you had forgotten all about. God forgets, but sin has consequences. The things that you do in this world still have an effect in this world. It's not like God just rewinds the clock as if it never happened, right? If you wronged somebody sinfully in this world and God forgives you, you still have to work it out with them, right? He doesn't just, like, it's not like men in black where they go, and they just forget what you did. No, you still have to work those things out. But God has a radical grace, the likes of which you and I will never, ever, ever be able to fully understand. And so David is included in the Hall of Faith. It's nothing to do with him, but everything to do with who God is and what he's done. And I saved David for last because of the egregious nature of his sin. See, we've all been angry like Moses. We've all lost control in in the moments of passion and anger. We've all been deceitful to some way like Jacob has. We've all tried to connive our way into getting something that we we feel like we should have. We've all plotted to get those kinds of things. We've all been like Abraham and Sarah in some sense where every once in a while we just like to help the Lord along with his plans because we can do it more efficient and quickly. We've done those things. But I'm going to hope, and maybe I'm wrong, but I'm going to hope that none of you have the sin rap sheet of David where you've, where you've killed off some people to cover up adultery. Maybe you do. And if you do, there's forgiveness. But, but David's last, because here's, here's the thing that you, you need to understand. David is the worst of us. Right? David's sin is more egregious than anyone in this room. And David's inclusion in the hall of faith means that no one in this room or outside of it is beyond hope. No one. I would dare say that this is probably the whole point of this series and of Hebrews 11 to begin with. Like the hall of faith exists to show you that some of the most egregious people in scripture who have fallen and wronged the Lord every step of the way before he changed their hearts are are hailed in this hall of faith. They are restored and redeemed and loved by a, a God who graciously and radically loves and cares about you and forgives. And I think a people like David illustrate to us that there's no one who is above saving. If you've ever thought that God can't love you because of who you are, if you've ever somehow thought that God can't forgive what you have done, if you've ever thought that God can't love you because of your past or even because of your present, even because of what you were doing or thinking or saying on the way to church this morning, if you have ever thought that you don't belong in the church or in this church, 
because you're too messy, you're too dirty, you're unpolished, you're not biblically literate or smart enough. If you've ever felt like everyone in the church would look down on you or judge you when you came in, you need to hear this very clearly. Those are lies. Straight from the pit of hell. You say, well, you don't know what I've, I don't care what you've done or who you were or who you are. None of you are above the saving grace of Christ. If you felt that way, you have to remember David, the adulterous, lying, cheating, deceiving murderer who God calls a man after his own heart. I recently talked to someone who overheard a conversation and people were talking about church people and they said, you know, I, I could never go to a church. They're just all, they're just all hypocritical. You know, they, they think that they're so righteous because they, they go to church on a Sunday morning. And that saddened me because, man, I don't know about you. I come to church on Sunday morning because I'm not righteous. Because I feel like I don't deserve to be here. I feel like I'm too dirty and too messy to step foot in this building. And so I come here because it's a hospital and I need to be here. So the Lord can help me get well and pick me up and dust me off and make me white. So that I can be righteous, not because I am somehow great, but because I come in here understanding who I am and he picks me up and dusts me off. We're here because we need a hospital for sinners. It stinks to me that the world out there thinks that we're self-righteous. I'm not here because I think it makes me a better person and it makes me look good when I go out there. I'm, not, I'm here because I know I'm an awful person and I really, really need to be here every week. Maybe you feel the same way. Here's the truth. We are not righteous because we walk in this door. We come here because we know we're not righteous. We come here because we're sinful, stained mess, and we need Jesus. And if you confess that and you come and sit at his feet and follow him, he will make you clean and he will place you in the great hall right next to David. Right next to Moses, right next to Abraham, right next to Sarai. You belong here in the kingdom of God. And he will make you clean if you trust him and you come to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Every one of us feels like David sometimes. Every one of us feels like we don't belong here, like we shouldn't be here, like everybody else is way cleaner than we are, way more deserving than we are. But yet you invite us Invite us into your sanctuary. And more than that, you invite us to your table. We thank you for that boundless grace that we don't feel like we deserve. And Lord, we come to you this morning. We confess the things in our life that have hindered us from following you fully. We confess the things that stop us from receiving your love with the fullness we, stop, we, we come to you confessing that we need you. We come to you confessing that we don't deserve to be here. We come to you confessing that we don't follow you daily as we should. We come to you confessing that we have done things that if people in this room knew it, they would never talk to us again. And we praise you for the fact that you, in the midst of that, invite us to be here. That you want us 
in your house. That you offer grace to us. That you make us clean. Lord, I ask that you give us wisdom in how we pursue the world that is around us. As we engage with our neighbors and our friends and our classmates and our co-workers and our families, that we might be able to demonstrate that grace. Because we ourselves are sinners in need of you. We're not self-righteous. We don't have it all together. But Lord, you promise to pick us up, to dust us off, and to put us in that great hall alongside of all those names. We long for that day when we get to be there. We long for the day that we get to be in your presence and no longer have to worry about the sin that stains us and mars us, but that we get to just be with you face to face in joy. And so we anticipate as God's people. We continue to come together. We worship. We pray. We praise. We serve. We love. We care. We fellowship. Waiting for that day where we get to do it 24-7. We love you. We praise you. And all his people said, Amen. Amen.